Joshua chapter 5, last week we got through verse 9. This week we're going to finish the chapter, Lord willing. Let's start reading in verse 8 for a little bit of context, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 8. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation, that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. And on that day of the pass on the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on that day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land, so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the hosts of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that today we've come on holy ground. Not because of a building, but because of your presence. God, you have promised throughout history that when your people gathered in your name, there you would be in our midst. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you now to come and speak to us in a powerful way. That you'd speak to us in our situation in life, Lord. You'd speak to those that don't know you and those that do. The unsaved and the saved. And that we would leave this place today different by the instruction of your word. No man can accomplish that. So, Holy Spirit, come and teach us, instruct us, deal with us. And I pray that today, Lord, you would restore unto us the joy of thy salvation that you would quicken in our spirits how wonderful, how great of salvation we have, and that you would uh, build in us an excitement for your soon coming, Lord. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we talked about the fact that they've gotten across the Jordan and they're in the land, and the first thing they do is they all get circumcised. It seems a little bit strange, but of course it was a sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham some 500 years earlier. And during the wandering in the wilderness, the previous 38 years, Israel had neglected to circumcise their sons on the eighth day as God had commanded Israel to do. And so now coming out of the wandering, the wandering in the wilderness, a place that represents disobedience and bad choices, coming into the land of promises, the land of Canaan, a place that represents obedience and blessings and fullness, the first thing that they do is obey the Lord and that they're to be circumcised as an outward sign of the inward reality of that covenant between God and Abraham. 
that he would make of Abraham a great nation and multitudes of nations, that he would be their God and that he would give them the land. And now that they are in the land, a fulfillment of the covenantal promises, they're circumcised as an outward display of their faith in those promises and the trust they have in the Lord. Now, being that they're mostly full-grown men at this time and they're being circumcised, it's going to take a little bit of time for them to heal. So we find in verse 8 that there they are healing. But that word uh, heal in Hebrew is interesting. It carries two basic meanings. It, it can mean to be healed from the wound, but it can also mean to be restored to life. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, which is what I teach from, and you have the ones with notes in the margin, you'll see there at a footnote for the word heal, it says revive. Listen to me. Not only were they physically healing from the physical effects of circumcision, but they were spiritually being revived now. Being in that place of promise, being in that place of the land, there was not only a physical work that was taking place as they healed in their obedience to the Lord, but there was a spiritual restoration of wholeness. Now this is illustrative of something that takes place in our lives. That is to say, often the Lord comes to us with a scalpel. And what the Lord wants to do is remove some of the flesh. You know, we let the flesh build up in our heart, and our heart becomes worldly. Instead of God-like, Christ-like, it gets worldly, and the Lord wants to cut that stuff away. Our Lord sometimes gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, and, and the Holy Spirit, the surgeon, comes and wants to remove that hardness. And it sometimes becomes calloused, or it just gets out of whack, and the Lord comes wanting to remove to cut away that flesh. And when the Lord does that, it's going to be painful often. Because oftentimes those places are places of pain. And the Lord wants to deal with the pain. He wants to deal with the places of hurt. And, and we often resist that. Because as that's uncovered, you know, it's raw again. And we buried it up with so much layers of self-defense and so many walls of denial and all these things. And the Lord says, son, daughter, I love you. I want to heal you. I want to revive you. And so sometimes the Lord comes with a surgeon's scalpel to remove some things that ought not to be in our lives. And don't run from the Lord when he does that. Allow the Lord to have his perfect work. Don't, don't squirm underneath that. Open up your heart and say, okay, Lord, come and see if there be any wayward thing within me. And then cut it out, Lord. And it's going to hurt a little bit when the Lord deals with some of that stuff sometimes. But listen, there's always a great healing that comes. And it's always better than before. They would heal. And, and there would be a physical healing, but there would be a spiritual revival, I believe, as they're in the land, that they're being revived now as they rest, having obeyed the Lord. They're being revived. And notice that there would be no battle in Jericho until they were cut and healed. There would be no victory until they were cut and healed. Let the Lord have his work. The word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword and able to pierce the very depths of our being. Let the word of God have its perfect word. Get into it every day. Meditate upon it. Put yourself underneath the good Bible teacher. Listen to it. Receive it. Let the Holy Spirit work through the Holy Word to cut those things away that there might come healing and revival to your life. And then comes victory in the battle against the walls of Jericho. Amen? Now in verse 10... It says, while the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. 
Notice that it says there in verse 10 that it's the 14th day. If you were careful when you read chapter 4, you saw in verse 19 that they crossed the Jordan on the 10th day. This is the first month on the Hebrew calendar. That's the month of Nisan. It's starting in, in just a few days on, on, in, in our world right now. On the Hebrew calendar, it's just about to come to the end of the year, in the beginning of a brand new year, Nisan. And, and, and the 10th of Nisan aligns with the week just prior to Easter. But they crossed over the Jordan on the 10th of Nisan. It's now the 14th of the month. So they've been sitting there being healed by the Lord for four days. Four days. And at the end of that four days, that healing period, they celebrate the Passover. Now the Passover was a celebration to commemorate when they were delivered from slavery by the blood of the Lamb. The Passover was a celebration that commemorated that event when they were delivered from slavery to Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. And it happened 40 years prior. Let's look at the details of that celebration in Exodus chapter 12. Please go there. Exodus chapter 12. As we turn back to Exodus 12, we go back about 40 years, just a little bit more. God is just about to deliver Israel from their captivity in Egypt. And it says in Exodus chapter 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. So, at the onset of the Exodus, when he delivered them from slavery, he restarted the clocks for them. So this is going to be a brand new beginning for you. This is going to be the first day of the rest of your life. Amen. And so it is when we're born again, when we're delivered from Egypt, when we're saved, when we're redeemed, when we're taken off the auctioning block of sin, when we're bought by the blood of the lamb and brought out of that place of drudgery and oppression and brought into freedom. It's like the first day of the rest of your life. You know what I mean? It's a brand new beginning. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things have become brand new. Amen. And so it is when he brings them out of Egypt. And so he says, this is going to be the first month of your year. He starts a clock over for them. And then it says in verse 3, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, okay, the tenth of this month, the month of Nisan, the same day that they crossed the Jordan 40 years later. On the tenth of this month, they are each one to take a lamb. I want you to notice that it says, if you have a literal translation, a lamb. Indefinite article there, a lamb. Just ambiguous, just not named, nothing special, just a lamb. They are to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Verse 4. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them, according to what each man should eat. And you are to divide the lamb. Now there's a definite article. That's very clear and that's very deliberate in Hebrew. No definite article before. It was just a lamb. Now the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture includes there in verse 4 the definite article. The lamb. Now look in verse 5. It says, your lamb. Now we have a personal pronoun. It was just a lamb. Then it was the lamb. Now it's your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Look, 
and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Look at me. Until the 14th day of the same month. That is a day 40 years later in Joshua chapter 5, the 14th of that month, where they're celebrating this event, Passover. But notice what they were supposed to do. The Jews were supposed to, every household, select a lamb. When they selected that lamb, it became the lamb. Now where they were to have that lamb in their house from the 10th to the 14th, four days. The reason they were to have it there four days is that during that time, it might go from a lamb to the lamb to their lamb. There would come a sense of connection and a sense of ownership in the house for four days. That's where they brought it, in the house. Now these were not big, fat, nasty, old lambs. These were sweet, little, soft, new lambs. These were little one-year-old lammies, little soft and sweet and cute. My little Daisy loves, she's two years old, and she's got a little lammy, not a real one, a stuffed thing. But it's just, she, it's endearing, and she loves it. My lammy, my lammy, and she sleeps with it. They're sweet little soft things, you know. And, and as the father selected that lamb, that sweet little soft one-year-old just entering its prime lamb, it was to be spotless and without blemish. Now, one of the reasons it would be in the house four days is so that the father could observe it to be spotless and blemish. He had to look very carefully to make, that there was no, make sure there's no flaw in the lamb. It didn't have any parasites. It wasn't lame. It wasn't crippled. It didn't have any defects. It wasn't blind or deaf or didn't have any nicks or discoloration. It had to be just perfect. Why? Because no sacrifice bought before the Lord is worthy unless it's perfect. So it is in our lives. When we offer up the sacrifice of praise to the Lord, we're to give him our best, not our leftovers, our best. So the father was to observe that that lamb was perfect. But the children, the Jewish children in the household, they would observe that that lamb was innocent. The father would observe that it was perfect and without blemish. But the children would observe that it was spotless and innocent. And they would become endeared to this little lamb. It would become endeared to them. You know, and they'd play with it and they'd cuddle it and they would love this little lamb for four days in the house. And so to the, to, to the little Jewish child, what happened next was quite a shock. Verse six, second, second part of the sentence. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. They were to kill it. The father would say, bring the lamb. Daddy, why? Bring the lamb. Papa, my lamb. Yes, your lamb. It is your lamb. God said it's your lamb. That's right. It's your lamb. Bring the lamb. You bring the lamb and the whole family was together outside the doors of the house. And the father would lay his hand on the head of the lamb, thereby signifying that it was a substitution for the life of his family. And the father would take a blade and in front of the children he would slit the throat wide open to that lamb. And that thing would scream and bleed everywhere. Those little Jewish kids would see that. And they would learn a lesson that they would never forget. They would learn that sin is costly. That God is holy. They would never forget that. You see, we miss that. That's often lost on us. They would see that blood spill, knowing that, that that lamb was perfect and innocent and sweet and wonderful in every way. And they understood, because they were little Jewish boys and girls, that that blood was being spilt on their behalf instead of their own. They would understand that day that sin is costly. 
but that God has mercy, that God provided a substitutionary sacrifice. That would resonate with them for the rest of their lives, that God provided a substitutionary sacrifice. Yes, he's a judge, and he's righteous, and sin is costly, and the wages of sin is death, so what could pay for that debt except for a life? And that innocent lamb would die. But isn't God merciful that he provided a covering for their sins through that little lamb? Man, those little Jewish kids would never forget that. And what would happen next would make it even more vivid for them. It says in verse 7, Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. So now they were to take that blood and to gather it up and they were to put it on the doorpost, on the side of the door and then on the lintel, that top beam that went across. And there was that blood. And that blood that was put on the top would have dripped down and made a puddle on the ground and it would have formed just a perfect cross about 1,500 years prior to the cross of Jesus Christ. Just a beautiful picture in the Old Testament of the blood of Jesus Christ spilt on the cross for you and I. And those kids would have looked at that dead lamb and they would have looked at that blood, and I'm telling you, they never forgot that sin was costly, but that God had mercy. What happened next would, would, would be even more profound in their minds. Verse 8, and they shall eat the flesh of that that night. No, 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 those Jewish kids enjoyed that meal. They loved that little lamb, and now they're eating the flesh of it. Roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but roasted with fire, both its head and its legs with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Why did they have to eat it in haste? Because that night the Lord would bring them out of Egypt. And notice that it says, that lamb is the Lord's Passover. That's what it said. You shall eat that lamb, your lamb, in haste, girded up, sandals on, staff in hand, ready to go toward freedom. It is that lamb, the Lord's Passover. Verse 12 explains. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So that would be the 10th and final plague that God would bring against Egypt because Egypt refused to let his people go. There were a series of plagues previously. This would be the final one. This would be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak, that would cause Pharaoh to allow the children to go. Verse 12. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Notice that the children of Israel were not automatically exempt from the plague. They were not automatically exempt from. The only thing that caused them to be exempt was that they were under the blood. When the plague came and took the firstborn of every household, the only thing that rendered them exempt and safe and that would cause them to be passed over was that they were under the blood. When the Lord saw that they had the blood on their homes, then they would be passed over in the wrath and the plague. They would be spared. They would be safe only by the blood. And then it says in verse 14, 
Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Both the celebration and the lamb are called the Passover. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach in Hebrew, Pesach. It means to pass over or, or to pass through or to exempt or to spare. But there's a deeper meaning to that word. That's the very basic meaning of it. But, but some people suggest that this Hebrew word, Pesach, Passover, has its roots in an Egyptian word. Israel having now been in Egypt for some 400 years, some people suggest that that word comes from the Egyptian word, Pesh, which means to spread wings over in order to protect. So there is this idea that this Hebrew word Pesach, Passover in English, has somewhere back in its etymology this Egyptian word, which means to spread wings over to protect. It's used that way, the Hebrew word Pesach, in Isaiah 31, verse 5, where it says, The Lord Almighty will hover over Jerusalem as a bird hovers around its nest. He will defend and save the city. He will pass over Pesach. He will pass over and rescue it. There we see the idea of the Lord passing over his people in the sense of spreading his wings over them to protect them to be a covering for them, to gather them together, to shelter. And so we have Jesus then in the New Testament standing over Jerusalem, Yerushalayim, and weeping over the city and saying in Luke 13, verse 34, Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I have wanted to gather you together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. God incarnate Jesus Christ standing on the Mount of Olives over Jerusalem. We'll go to the spot when we go to Israel this September. Standing over Jerusalem and saying, Jerusalem, how long I, your God, have wanted to gather you under my wings to protect you. But then he said, but you would not have it. His people refused to come under his covering. They were still his people, they were the Jews, they were Israel. But a portion thereof were refusing to come under the covering of the Lord, under the Pesach, under the spreading of the wings, under the protection of the Lord. Let me just ask you, is your life under the covering of the Lord? Have you come to the Lord and said, Lord, my life is yours. I submit my life to you. I give my life to you. Lord, I want you to be my portion. I want you to be my covering. I want you to be my protection. Lord, I'm getting rid of self-reliance and I'm coming under your covering. When you come under his covering, it's coming under his authority. I place myself under your authority. Now, Colossians chapter 1 says that we have been delivered from the power of darkness. Exousias tu scotu in Greek. We have been delivered from the power of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son by the cross of Jesus Christ. We are, if you're a Christian, already under his authority. We belong to him. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. Your address has been changed. 
But are you dwelling there? Are you dwelling under the shadow of the Almighty? Are you dwelling under the wings of the Lord? Are you cultivating goodness and faithfulness in the land? Are you resting in his presence? Are you submitting your daily life to his authority? The term Pesach applied to both the ceremony and the lamb. The lamb that was slain, the lamb whose blood they were under, and the lamb whose flesh they were supposed to eat. And remember, they had that lamb with them for four days that it might go from being a lamb to the lamb to their lamb. And they would never forget that picture when that lamb was slaughtered. But there would be many other lambs that would come. In the religious life of Israel, they would slaughter hundreds and thousands of lambs, bulls, and goats. They would spill gallon after gallon of blood. Over and over and over again. Why? Because the blood of animals only provided a covering for their sins. It didn't remove their sins. It simply provided a covering for their sins. And so their sin would be covered for a time, and then they would sin again, and another sacrifice. And they were covered for a time, and they would sin some more, and another sacrifice. And the religious life of Israel was tedious and bloody and costly. Now, Jesus Christ, some 1,500 years later, no, some long time later, comes walking up to the Jordan River as John is baptizing people. And John sees Jesus as John is baptizing Jews for the repentance of sins. He sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. When he said, behold the Lamb of God, every, every Jewish heart and every Jewish mind went, a lamb, the lamb, our lamb, God's lamb. God's lamb? It's God's lamb. Behold the Lamb of God, and what he said next was earth-shattering, who takes away the sins of the world, John 1, 29. Look at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And, and the heart of the learned Jew went, takes away? No, not takes away. John, you mean who covers the sins of the Jews is what you mean, John. No, who takes away the sins of the world. Jews only knew a covering for their sins. Jesus Christ came along and he was not a lamb it's not the lamb. It's not their lamb. He's God's lamb who takes away once and for all, removes as far as the east is from the west, buries in the deepest sea the sins of the world. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7 that Jesus Christ is our Passover. He is our covering. He is the one who spilt his blood that we might be under the blood. He is our deliverer and our rescuer. Three years later, Jesus would make something called the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and through the eastern gate of the Temple Mount. When we go to Israel in September, 
we will walk the very road. There's only one road that goes down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, and up to the Eastern Gate. We will walk it together where Jesus made his triumphal entry. When he did that, he was fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. This is, behold, your king comes to you lowly and seated on a donkey. It was his triumphal entry. What was it a presentation of? It was a presentation of God's lamb. When did that happen? On the 10th of Nisan. What was happening on the 10th of Nisan? Every single Jewish household in Israel was choosing a lamb, the lamb, their lamb. As the whole nation is choosing a lamb for their household and the high priest was choosing a lamb for the whole nation, God was presenting his lamb at the Mount of Olives. At the very day when they were choosing, God was presenting the lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. Now what happened next? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, Jesus went into the house to be observed. The house, the temple in Jerusalem, the house of Israel, the house of prayer for all the nations. For four days, just as every household had a lamb in their house, Jesus was in the house. And the teachers of Israel were observing him to see if he was indeed pure and spotless and without blemish, weren't they? Remember the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come and question him time and time again. And they would observe him for four days to be pure and spotless and blameless and without blemish. And after those four days, at twilight, which means between dark and between dawn, when all of Israel would have been slitting the throat of their lamb, God was spilling the blood of his lamb on the cross on the same exact day to take away the sins of the world. I don't see how anybody misses who Jesus Christ is. He was observed for four days just as the lamb was, and he was without sin, he was unblemished and spotless. And it says about him in Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. Just like that lamb that would have been at the doorpost of the family. Even Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. He's a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to get a little glimpse of heaven. Turn to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, keeping the Lamb in mind. To give you a little bit of context, we are in heaven right now in Revelation 4 and 5. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 10, we see a picture of the church and what the church will be doing in heaven. We're going to see a group of people here, the 24 elders mentioned. They are a representative, a representative uh, body of the church of Jesus Christ. Okay, so what they're doing right now in this picture of heaven is what we will be doing in heaven. Revelation chapter 4 verse 10. It says the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. Look at that. That's what we're doing in heaven. It says the 24 elders will fall down before him and will worship him. People say all sorts of silly things about heaven. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, why? God, why? What about this? It was unfair. God, how come? There's going to be no whys, no how comes. We will fall on our face before a holy God and worship him. 
hey man, if worship isn't your gig and you're a Christian, you got a problem. Because that's what heaven is all about. As your pastor, I want to prepare you right now for heaven. You better start worshiping Jesus Christ. I don't want you to get there and be bummed out, man. When we get to heaven, we're going to be worshiping the Lord. No ifs, ands, buts, who, why, how, what. On your face before the Lord. And, you know, we're excited about heaven because we'll receive rewards, right? We'll receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, crowns for our faithfulness with the gifts that the Lord has given us. And, and you know how we are. We'll want to strut those things around and look at my crowns and, oh, Pastor G, he's got the most crowns and this and that and the other. None of that. It says that when we see the Lord, we will throw our crowns. We lay down, we throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ. Man, do you know who he is? And then it says in the next verse, verse 11, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. Now, concerning the Lamb, go to chapter 5, verse 6. Chapter 5, verse 6. It says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Wait a minute, hold on, stop. I just want to digress for a moment. I want you to see how precious your prayers are in heaven because I don't think we know. It says there that the prayers of the saints are golden bowls full of incense. Strip away all your silly connotations about incense. Whatever you think about it, it doesn't matter. In this time, in this economy, in this mindset, in the mindset of the Bible, it was a precious, valuable, pleasing, good thing. And so God characterizes our prayers, your prayers and my prayers, as good and precious and valuable and pleasing. Our prayers are golden bowls full of incense before the Lord. If we understood how attentive the Lord is to our prayers, we would pray more. If we understood how pleased the Lord is to hear the supplications of His children, we would supplicate more. If we understood the direct access that we have to the throne of grace, we would enter in more and more boldly. And then it says in verse 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and we will reign upon the earth. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and living creatures and elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice. I want you to notice something, that whenever the Bible talks about heaven, it often characterizes it as being loud. That is why in reality we turn the sound up. We are trying to prepare you for heaven. We don't want you to be surprised or disappointed. And so we worship loud because heaven is loud. And with a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive. Look what, well, look what they ascribe to the Lord. Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Everything that man strives after in this life and kills each other for, we just ascribe it to Jesus Christ when we see him. It's not for us, it's for him power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing 
to the Lord. Verse 13, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessings and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Can I get an amen? Amen. There's amens in heaven. I don't want you to be disappointed or disillusioned. When we get to heaven, the living creatures are going to be saying amen when we worship the Lord. The church ought to be saying amen to these things. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who shed his blood for you and I. Why the blood, though? Why the blood? It says there that we were purchased with his blood. Why the blood? Well, listen, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. No forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Why is that? Because in Leviticus 17, 11, you read it when you're reading your one-year Bible. It says in Leviticus 17, 11, the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. Very logically now, if you drain all the blood out of your veins, you don't live anymore. I don't care what you put in there, you no live anymore if you drain all the blood out of your veins. The life is in the blood. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. The wages of sin is death. The debt of sin is death. The price of sin is death. What sin earns you is death. If that is the price, what could possibly be the payment but a life? Why the blood? Because the life is in the blood. And so the blood of the innocent animals were spilt to provide a covering. But it says in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to remove the sins of the people. Only Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, could redeem us with His life, with His blood. And so it says in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18, You are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Now there is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot cleanse. We are cleansed by His blood. We are given life by His blood. We are made brand new by His blood in the fact that He gave His life for us. Jesus Christ, theologically important point, lived a perfect life because we could not. And so when He died a substitutionary death, the credit of His life was credited to our account. That's what it's talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, when it says, God made Him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God. His righteousness credited to our account because he died a substitutionary death. He lived a perfect life because we couldn't. His righteousness is ascribed to us when we come under his covering, under his authority, under his blood. We are made righteous by that blood through the cross of Jesus Christ. And there is no sin that that blood cannot cleanse. And so what I want to appeal to you for right now is this. If you're a Christian, do not walk in condemnation. Do not dwell in shame. Do not live in guilt. That cheapens the blood of Jesus Christ. You have been redeemed with the imperishable blood of the spotless lamb. Your sins have been removed as far as east from the west. They've been buried in the deepest sea. God chooses to remember them no more. Who are you to remember what God has chosen to bury in the deepest sea? 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You know who wants to condemn you? The devil. And sometimes your sick religious self. Get over that. Don't partner with the enemy in that self-condemnation. The enemy wants to come and make you feel horrible. He, he wants you caught up in shame and guilt. Jesus Christ died upon the cross that we might be set free. Remember what Gilgal means? This day, this place, I've rolled away your shame. The Passover lamb rolls away the shame. Be free in the name of Jesus Christ. Be healed in the name of Jesus Christ. Walk in freedom and fullness and wholeness because his blood cleanses us of every impurity. Amen? And the night before he was crucified, he was having the Passover meal, Pesach, with his disciples. And he took the third cup of the Passover meal. It's a cup of redemption. And when he took the third cup of the Seder meal, the Passover meal, he would have begun to give the traditional Jewish blessing, Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. And he would have blessed the cup, and then, instead of continuing on with the Passover meal, as every Jew there expected, he said, this cup is a cup of a new covenant. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins for many. And he took the bread and he broke and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you drink of it, as often as you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. And so in the same way, those little Jewish children would have eaten the flesh of that lamb that was slain. And it would have been such a powerful reminder of the seriousness of sin and yet the mercy of God in the same way that in Joshua chapter 5, the children of Israel now celebrated the Passover and they would have killed thousands, hundreds of thousands of lambs and they would have eaten the flesh in the same way. The blood of Jesus Christ has been spilt once for all. There is no more sacrifice for sins. What did he say on the cross? Tetelestai in the Greek. It is finished, paid in full, done. Not covered, removed. So in the same way, we come to the communion table, which is a powerful picture of the blood and the body of Jesus Christ by which we are cleansed. We ought to come to this thing with zeal. We ought to come to this thing with rejoicing. We ought to come to this thing with celebration. We ought to come to this thing in freedom, knowing that by the blood we're cleansed. We ought to come and celebrate every single week. And I want you to notice that Passover meant for Israel freedom from the enemy. And when they were at Gilgal in Joshua 5 celebrating this Passover, they were just two miles from the enemy's stronghold of Jericho. And they ate that Passover lamb. It was like waving a flag on the 4th of July in America. Just, we are free. And they ate that Passover lamb and celebrated that freedom right under the nose of the enemy. I love what Alan Redpath says about it. He says this, Feast on Christ in the thick of the fight under the very nose of the devil and prove to him that Jesus is conqueror. That is Gilgal. I love that. Next time the enemy starts to come and mess with you, you just start feasting on the person of Jesus Christ. Where do we find it? Right here. The Word of God. The Word of God. And the next time the enemy is messing with you and he's coming against you with his schemes, open up the Word of God and feast on the bread of life, the person of Jesus Christ, and prove to the enemy that Jesus is the victor. Amen? That is Gilgal, the place where the shame is rolled away. And Psalm 23 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou dost prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil, my cup overflows. There is the abundant life. 
Even in the presence of our enemies, the Lord always has set for you a banqueting table. The question is, will you come to the table? Will you come under the covering, the shadow of his wings? Will you lay yourself before the lamb? Will you come to the banqueting table, the place of abundance? The enemy has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and life more abundance and that our cups might overflow and surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. That is the life of fullness and they would feast on the produce of that land. Let's finish now in Joshua 5. Joshua chapter 5, as we finish the chapter. Verse 11, And on that day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Just a wonderful picture there of them now just enjoying the fruit of the land and the fullness of the land. Because remember, the wilderness and the wandering therein was a result of the disobedience of the previous generation. And in the wilderness was monotony and dryness. In Canaan is promise, blessing, and fullness. And now they're eating of the land. This is a great picture of the Christian life when we allow the Lord to discipline us. And then when we come through that, what it yields. Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, Hebrews 12 says, as well as Proverbs. And then Hebrews 12, 11 says this. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. If there is sin in your life, if you're walking in disobedience, the Lord is going to want to discipline you. He's going to come with the surgeon's scalpel, and it's not pleasant at the moment, but for those who have their senses trained by it, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Man, those words ought to resonate in the redeemed heart of God's people. Peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's what I want. Because when I'm in disobedience, it's anything but peaceful, anything but fruitful, and anything but righteous. And Jesus came and said, My peace I give to you. He who abideth in me bear much fruit. And by his blood we are made righteous. Let the Lord discipline you. Let him come with the scalpel of the surgeon and cut you. It will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness and you will feast in the life of abundance as they did at this moment. And it says in the next verse, and the manna ceased on that day after they had eaten some of the produce of the lamb. The manna ceased. It goes all the way back to Exodus 16. They were wandering in the wilderness and even in that place of disobedience, God was so kind to them to give them manna because there was no other food around. And God could have said, hey, this was your decision, guys. You chose to be in the wilderness. You could have been eating those fat grapes that Joshua and Caleb brought out and showed you. But you chose to wander in the wilderness. This is your place. Sorry. But the Lord is so merciful. Even when we blow it, the Lord is so merciful, especially when we blow it. And the Lord provided manna. Manna was this trippy, weird thing. They didn't have any other food. And so the, the, in the morning, as the dew would dry up, it would leave this flaky stuff on the ground that was kind of like a bread-like substance. And, and when the Hebrews saw it, they looked at it, and they said, they, they said, man? In Hebrew, that means what? That's what that means. They actually said, man who? Which in Hebrew means, what is it? They looked at it and they said, what is it? Man who? Manna. That's where we get the word manna. And it was the provision of the Lord even in the wilderness. But listen, it wasn't the greatest flavor and it became monotonous. You Christian can live in the wilderness for as long as you want, but it's not the greatest flavor of the life in Christ Jesus and it will become monotonous and drudgery to you. You will still experience the mercy of the Lord, 
He causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the wicked alike. But it will be drudgery. It will be dry. It will not be fullness. Oh, how sick they would have been of manna. Forty years they ate that manna. Every day the manna. They would have had manna every way. They would have boiled manna, baked manna, barbecued manna, manna sandwiches with mayonnaise. <laughs> they would have manna souffle and manna cotti. <laughs> they would have banana manna nut bread. Manna every which way, just sick of manna. Aren't you sick of walking around the wilderness? Haven't you had enough of the dry times? Enough of the monotony? Aren't you ready for the fullness of life in Jesus Christ? Then enter in. Then enter in by the grace of the Lord. Pursue him with every fiber of your being. With all that is within you. Maybe you say, I want to, but I can't. I'm having trouble. I don't know what to do. Jesus has a wonderful promise for you. Jesus said to the woman at the well, who was an adulterer and a fornicator, he came to this woman and he said, the Father is looking for people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Such people as this, the Father is seeking. You say, I don't know how to find the Lord. I don't know how to get to the Lord. I know the Lord. I've been saved, but I feel so far off. Stop it. Get on your face. Worship him and the Father will find you. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. The Father's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth, who will enact in this earthly place that heavenly reality of praise to the Lamb who is seated upon the throne. And now we finish. Now it came about, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. Okay. Joshua's really brave here. His whole fighting force is incapacitated because they've been circumcised. They're all laid out there healing and Joshua in the middle of the night goes to Jericho. Two miles away all by himself walks through the land and he's just there looking at Jericho. And who knows what's going on in his heart. Maybe he's saying, Lord, how are we going to do this? Or maybe he's just saying, oh Lord, when are we going to do this? Who knows what's going on in his heart? Either way, in the middle of the night, he sneaks away and he's looking at Jericho, that city that he knows he's going to take. And all these words that the Lord has spoken to him, be strong and courageous for I am with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And at that moment, this man appears and he's got a sword in his hand. Now who do you think this man is? This is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. This is what's called a theophany. This is the Lord appearing to him. How do we know it's not an angel? Well, I'll tell you how we know it's not an angel. Because in verse 14, Joshua gets down on his face and bows down before this being. Angels throughout the Bible re repel worship. They flee from, they want nothing to do with your worship. They know it is for God. They see him face to face. They are disgusted when humanity tries to worship them. In Revelation chapter 22, John, after all he had seen, an angel appears to him and John falls down on his face before him and the angel says, what are you doing? Get up. I am just a fellow servant of yours. I'm just a brethren of yours and the prophets. Do not do that. Worship God. How do we know this is the Lord, a theophany, and not an angel, because he receives the worship of Joshua. The second way that we know this is the Lord is because of what he says in verse 15. And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. 
No angel declares the ground around him to be holy. He knows who's holy. Every angel knows who is holy. This is the Lord. In fact, he's saying the same thing that he said to Moses. When Moses saw the Lord in the burning bush, take your shoes off, kid. This is holy ground. And right there, that promise was fulfilled that God made Joshua in the first chapter. As I was with Moses, show I shall be with you. And God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and God now appears to Joshua with a big sword. And Joshua says to him, in the end of verse 13, are you for us or for our adversaries? And look how the Lord answers in verse 14. And he said, no. If you have a literal translation, he said, no. Wait a minute. You didn't answer my question. Are you for us or are you for the enemy? No. What do you mean, no? How about it? What do you mean, no? Are you for us or the enemy? No. No which one? No who? No what? I don't know. Who are you for? No. In other words, Joshua had the wrong question. The question is not, hey, Lord, are you on my side? The question for every one of us is, Lord, am I on your side? It's not, Lord, will you bless my gig? It's, Lord, what's your gig? It's not, Lord, are you for us? The question is, are we for the Lord? Joshua asked the wrong question. Lord didn't even answer, just said, no. No, because humanity does not ask, is the Lord on our side? Humanity says, am I on the Lord's side? And the Lord says, no, rather indeed now I come as captain of the hosts of the Lord. That is the angelic armies, the same ones that Jesus could have called upon in Gethsemane. He told Peter, I could call for legions of angels to be here. The same ones that in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elisha, Prayed that the Lord would open his servant's eyes to see the angelic host. And there were the angelic armies with chariots and weapons just surrounding the enemy. This is a captain of the angelic armies, the host. It is the Lord himself. And Joshua fell on his face to earth and bowed down and said to him, What do you want me to do? And he said, Take off your shoes, for this is holy ground. And I'll tell you what Joshua learned in that moment. Joshua learned that consecration precedes conquest. Consecration. Sanctifying ourselves, recognizing the holiness of God precedes conquest. Take off your shoes, this is holy ground. Consecrate yourself. He talk, took off his shoes. And then and only then did he receive instruction from the Lord. And you'll read later on when we get to chapter 6 that the Lord gave him the plan and says in verse 2, See, I have already given you Jericho. The Lord revealed to Joshua in an instant that the tone and the tenor of the victorious Christian life is humble worship, a holy walk, and then heavenly warfare. Humble worship, a holy walk, take your shoes off, this is holy ground, and then heavenly warfare. And he consecrated himself, and only then would he discover that the battle belongs to the Lord and that the Lord is a victorious warrior. So it says in Isaiah 42, 12, and 13, Let them give glory to the Lord and declare His praise in the coastlands. The Lord will go forth like a warrior. He will arouse His zeal like a man of war. He will utter a shout. Yes, He will raise a war cry. He will prevail against His enemies. There was no doubt in Joshua's mind when the Lord appeared to him with a big sword who would have the victory. He now knew, oh, it's not my battle. It's not, Lord, are you on my side? It's not that I'm in command. He now knew, I'm second in command. Lord, it's your battle. You're in command. 
It's your victory. And so it is in your life, Christians. The battle belongs to the Lord. He's a victorious warrior. He died upon the cross and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and principalities of darkness. He is a victorious warrior God on your behalf. Do you see him? Do you see him? If you don't see him, you better get an Elisha praying for you that God would open up your eyes because the angel of the Lord encamps about those who fear him. If you're not seeing the Lord, get on your face and worship him and the Father himself will come find you. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you. Come find us, Father. We want to be found as those who would worship in spirit and in truth. We want to see you as a victorious warrior king in the battle of our lives. The battle belongs to the Lord. You are faithful and victorious. You are the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world, and we trust you, Jesus Christ. We want to submit ourselves to your covering, to your authority, to your will for our lives. We want to render ourselves as being second in command. We want to put ourselves under the blood and stay under the blood. We want to consecrate ourselves and be on holy ground. We want that victorious life. Holy Spirit, come and work it in us. Come, Holy Spirit, come and work it in us. These are your people. You know their hearts. Come and work it in us. Prayer team is here. Communion is here. Let's do business.